0: Welcome to episode 628 with my guest Kathleen Hammond. Uh, this, this, uh, the beginning of this episode or this interview with Kathleen, uh, I thought the the focus of the episode was really going to be about bullying, but it 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 really wound up not being uh, about that. So it's a little misleading in uh, in the beginning. And what I mean by that is I'm deep down a terrible person, and so I just want to prepare you that um i go in for surgery tomorrow and my shoulder finally fucking finally um i assume i'll be able to do an episode next week i think i can one hand this um i wanted to share this with with especially those of you that live in a, a metropolis or maybe those of you that don't maybe just everybody in general, but um, I've lived in L.A. 28 years, something like that, since 94, uh, 29 years, holy fuck, and um, I'd never been to the symphony, and I said to my girlfriend the other day, let's go to the symphony, and there's this, the, the place where the L.A. Philharmonic plays is called Disney Hall, and it's this amazing uh, Frank Geary designed building that it looks like it was made out of origami. It's, it's just weird shapes. And those of you that know anything about audio and acoustics, um, the best ambient spaces are ones where there are no parallel surfaces to each other. Uh, so this design makes it amazing acoustically. And I, I, it was such an amazing experience um i was not familiar with any of the music that was played there was stuff by prokokiev um a uh early 20th century composer named dawson um and uh and who and uh revel and it was just so beautiful it it um it just reminded me how easy it is to get stuck in your comfort zone and not go out and experience things, especially if you live in a, a metropolis and you take for granted that that stuff is is always there. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to share was um, I like taking, well, I should say I take the metro, which is LA's subway. I live in the valley which is on the other side of the hill from a lot of the downtown, and the, the <laughs> it's on the other side of the hill from all the places you want to be, but it's cheaper to live. Anyway, traffic can be a real nightmare, so the metro is much more convenient, and it used to be a safe, clean place, and it is turning into a fucking apocalypse. It is, the last six times that I have ridden the metro, I have... I wouldn't say I have feared for my life, but I've been right on that border where I'm like shit is about to break loose and I might have to fight somebody to defend myself or my girlfriend. And the shit you see there is uh, a lady nude from the waist down. The only people that talk on the train... Are talking to people that aren't there. Everybody else is just focusing on not making eye contact. It smells like, like a, uh, like a dog kennel, um, urine. And taking this metro to the symphony was like a roller coaster of experiencing humanity. And I got to be honest, I'm not really comfortable on the metro or around people in a symphony. Somewhere in between is kind of is kind of my comfort zone, but it it stirs that fear that I think a lot of us have that oh this is the beginning of the end. And I don't know if the solution to that is to just try to connect with people in places that are more positive and not as um, <laughs> depressing. But there, there's, I guess what I'm saying is I'm comfortable around people that are somewhere between uh, somebody on a platform drinking soup out of a shoe and somebody uh, looking at an opera through a monocle. That was a long-winded uh, way of saying that. If if, <laughs> if you've ever been to Disney Hall, uh, the balcony, which is where we sat, the very, very upper balcony, the railing is knee height, the first row of the balcony. So <laughs> I don't know how that is legal. I turned to my girlfriend and I said, I'm more afraid of this fucking railing than I am of playing ice hockey. It it I don't know how that how that is legal, but what I, I guess what I'm saying is um I want you to get on a train and go fall to your death. Is that a long winded way of saying that? Oh, and I forgot to share this. On the way back from the metro, a guy who who smelled like a weed farm is talking to nobody in particular, yelling. ...that he has got the mafia protecting him. Start sharing that with another guy. And that guy's just nodding like, oh boy, please wrap this up. Uh, And then the guy turns to me, the guy saying that he's protected from the mafia. And he's yelling it. And he's got a full bottle of wine in his hand, unopened. But my first thought is, that's going to crack my skull open and this is how I die. And he's screaming... I'm protected by the motherfucking mafia. And he gets, like, two feet from my face. And he's going, Italiano! Italiano! And I'm just nodding and smiling. And I have my mask on because, like I said, it smells like a dog kennel. And I'm thinking, please, please don't hit me in the head. And then... (laughs) I guess he thinks I'm Italian. He starts calling me Papa. (laughs) And at that point, I guess it got so ridiculous that I I was like, you know what, if I got to go out, I don't mind a stranger yelling at me and calling me Papa. And all of this has been brought to you by Los Angeles Metro. Filthy, dangerous, convenient. All aboard. Let's read a couple of surveys. I forgot to mention in the uh, the preamble that the uh, website for this show is MentalPod. You can also donate uh, through Venmo to this podcast. Uh, the Venmo handle is MentalPod. And um, preface, I'm not a therapist, but I do look good in a tight pair of slacks. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Unhappy Gilmore. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? It is not normal to lay in bed till 3 p.m. I guess Dad was right. You are lazy. Those pants won't fit, but don't throw them away. You don't deserve a happy life, so stop trying. No one will ever find you attractive. This is a waste of time. Concise and to the fucking point on Abby Gilmore. And I relate too. A lot, a lot of those thoughts. I think they're, some of those are with me every morning and it is a battle out of the gate to uh, find a defense attorney. Isn't that what so much of life is, is just finding a defense attorney for the mean voice in our head so we can get on and uh, cope? This is also from the uh, Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Allison. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm lazy. I need to be healthier. I'm not great, but I'm better than a lot of people. I love that one, and I think a lot of us think that or feel that subconsciously, but we never voice that. And it's one of the reasons why I love a good, dark documentary about something awful, psychopaths, because then I'm always like, okay, if humanity's on a curve, I'm doing fucking great. Uh... And the last thing that uh, she tells herself is, I should drink some water. I like that. And she's a new listener who has never listened to the podcast. She writes, I came here from your mom's house. Shout out to Christina and Tom, who uh, are, um, Christina's been a guest on the podcast, love her episode. And uh, Tom is apparently a listener from what I understand. And um, maybe they gave us a shout out this week. On the podcast, which uh much appreciated if that is the case. This podcast is sponsored by Better Help Online Therapy. Uh, you know, as we talk a lot about on the podcast, uh try to be authentic. Try to uh feel like the best version of ourselves. And therapy helps me with that. I've been a big believer in therapy for a long time and in particular BetterHelp. I love doing online therapy, not having to leave my house. I love my therapist Heidi. She is wise and compassionate and she helps guide me through my nuttiness. Uh, So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's flexible, uh, convenient, affordable, and entirely online and you don't have to take the LA metro to get there. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental so they know you uh, you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living? As he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must read for anyone in medicine from a doctor turned patient. Okay, uh, the reason I ask, I like how I'm asking, as if you you're all in the room listening on headphones and you're going to give me immediate feedback. But maybe you could uh, uh, email me and let me know because I switched uh, preamps and microphones, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that this sounds good. All right, uh, one more survey before we get to that interview with uh, Kathleen. Uh, and again, the disclaimer, we veered away from bullying uh, as, I, as I thought it was going to be about bullying in the beginning and uh, blah, blah, blah. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by Janie Two Hats. Janie, I'd like to see you go back to one. I think two is, uh, it's a low body. What do you like or dislike about your body and why? My body tells the story of my mental illness and will forever remind me of the things I've put myself through. I went through a phase of body modification in my 20s when I had most of my body tattooed and or pierced. I also had my tongue split, my navel removed. Uh, I don't know what the purpose of having a navel navel removed is. Uh, Subdermal implants, amongst other things. I have no specific regrets, but I now recognize these things as an outlet for internal suffering. And it's all made worse because of significant scarring left from a serious suicide attempt. My wonderfully tattooed arms and chest are ruined uh, for the world to see. I also feel the need to wear a scarf all year. Uh, to cover the scars on my neck, I have a professional job in healthcare and will always feel inadequate in my role because of my appearance. Between the modification phase and suicide attempt, I became addicted to exercise and diet control. I lost a lot of weight and became super fit, but ultimately gained an eating disorder. My meals had to be eaten at specific times high protein, low carb, no deviation. I was mostly living on protein and anxiety. Three hours per day dedicated to exercise. Some kind of mania? Question mark? Who knows? Then my mind fell apart when I thought I was going to be made redundant. I gained 80 pounds, pushed away my close friends, overshared with others, and spiraled into despair. So now I'm fat and middle-aged, scarred to buggery. Bad skin, bad guts, bad eyesight, bad joints. Oh, and I look like my mother. My consciousness might be disintegrated heavy-weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for
1: a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with
0: him post-traumatic stress i was
1: like five years old was pulp fiction
0: (laughs) and moral injury i
1: would act out the scenes gonna go to hell with my barbies
0: (laughs) The greatest source of our suffering... Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. ...is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is
1: very hard to heal in dark isolation.
0: I developed compassion.
1: It is in connection and community where that happens.
0: The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. (laughs) I'm here with uh, Kathleen Hammond, who I met at a... uh, support group a couple of weeks ago and you started talking about bullying and i was like you know we've touched on this topic before in the podcast but we've never really delved into it especially from the parents perspective so thank you for coming
1: thank you for having me
0: yeah um where do we did you experience bullying as a as a kid you know any more than the ordinary uh, kind of kid does
1: i don't think probably more than the ordinary but i was an extra sensitive child mm-hmm. so that might have attracted a little more bullying and certainly made the experience amplified in my head
0: yeah and and you have been sober for how long
1: 9 years now it'll be yeah. 10 years this july
0: that's awesome mm-hmm. um so, let's let's talk about um, when bullying first appeared in your your life as a parent.
1: Well, my oldest daughter Nellie, um, she was extraordinarily intelligent. Um, I remember when she was about eight years old, and her baby sister Emma was six. And at that age, children uh, don't like to take showers. They want to be filthy all the time. They don't mm-hmm. want to take the time away from the fun to take a shower. Sure. So I said, girls, it's time to shower who's going first. And neither of them wanted to go first. So I said, OK, pick a number between 1 and 10. And whoever is closer can go second. Nellie said 2. I looked at Emma, and she said 8. And I looked back at Nellie, I said, pick again. And she said, oh, well, then your number was five. She (laughs) was eight years old, and that quickly (laughs) she deduced that because I had asked again, that meant that they were equidistant from the target, and she had it. Um, That's the kind of smart that Nellie was. Um, She was now, in retrospect, I think a little bit on the spectrum. Although she would have never qualified for a spectrum diagnosis based Mm -hmm. on the DSM. Um, But um, extraordinarily gifted, a little bit drawn inward at times, thick glasses, cute as a peanut. Um, But to other kids, that could be a target for some bullying.
0: Yeah. And so when did it... kind of rear its head.
1: The summer between fifth and sixth grade, um, she was in a day camp at a recreation center, a local recreation center for the summer. And um, a friend became a frenemy. Um, The relationship between them became strained. And she um, complained to me of having been gaslighted by this other child who was um, a teenager at the time, a couple of years older than her. And she didn't describe a lot of the details to me um, because she wasn't the type of kid that taught, she would kind of hold that stuff in. And... Um, but she did mention that the... The other child had told her things like, why don't you kill yourself? And she became just utterly despondent and um, withdrawn and dark. And she said it had to do with the breakup of this friendship and the um, and the the words that were said between them.
0: Was there an incident or uh, something that triggered this, or was it just this this uh, friend of hers just uh, kind of turned? Was it encouraged by other kids? Not that it matters, but I'm just kind of curious.
1: As I recall, the initial confrontation or conflict had to do something with um, – maybe the friend lending my daughter $5 and mm-hmm. telling her not even that it was a loan, that, oh, you wanted a Starbucks, here's $5 to get a Starbucks, and then later asking for it, my daughter not wanting to give it back to her, not having, and so that right. was, you know, it was over N- a, Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not a big deal.
0: So what, what happened next?
1: Well, I guess that there the argument turned into an erosion of the friendship, which turned into um, an adversarial relationship between the two of them. Um, Seeing what was going on, I wanted to give it some time uh, for it to potentially um, work itself out. Mm -hmm. Um, Nellie being the type of child that she was, um, could be a difficult kid to be friends with. Even had a friend from her elementary school say, um, "You know, we're in the same class together. We'll work in the same groups together, but I don't want to be your friend anymore." You know, she just couldn't, sort of, couldn't handle her.
0: And and, and like specifically, um, what what aspects of her were difficult for her, her some of her peers to handle.
1: I think she was probably pretty bossy. They would have mm-hmm. described her as bossy, um, abrupt and, um, and, uh, not very good at, you know, stubborn, not very good at sort of backing down, wanting mm-hmm. to have what she wanted in social situations, whether they be doing a, a class project and, mm-hmm. you know, my daughter would want to be the leader or, um, in uh, one way or another, maybe be the, the primary position or center of attention. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's kind of nuanced stuff, I think, sometimes for kids that are as gifted as she and as, you know, a little bit um, on the spectrum like she was yeah. um, or like I believe she was. So um, I wanted to give it some time. And she began to really withdraw and get sort of dark. Um, in the end of June, it might have been the last day of June, if of that same summer, we were at the Rose Bowl uh, to see a Drum Corps International competition, um, both my daughters played trumpet, and um, I wanted to show them uh, uh, a show like that. And um, I was holding her hand and sort of casually drew my fingers up her arm and felt that it was scratched and um, turned her arm over, rolled up her sleeve and saw that she had been cutting herself. In the moment, it was sort of a okay, well, we're going to need to have a talk about this when we get home. I took her out of the day camp because I, I just wanted to remove her from that situation. I really couldn't ascertain if the problem was my daughter or if the problem was this other child. Was she telling me the complete truth about what was going on? Was she... Um, embellishing it all um, I couldn't get a lot of information about the camp or fr- out of the camp I should say sorry right. um, you know the director of the camp said it was kind of both of them mm-hmm. and I thought well it was making her so distressed that I thought I just need to remove her from this situation and I don't know if it was the lack of a pathway to a remedy for it that distressed her so much, but she was in a very dark place. And I became extremely concerned. Um,
0: and, and describe uh, the how the dark place she was in presented itself to you.
1: She was withdrawn. She didn't have the spring in her step. Um, she became um, quieter, less... For lack of a better term, enthusiastic and loving, um, and and extraordinarily sad all the time. That must
0: have been so hard for you to. I mean, what what thoughts and feelings were going through your head watching your child withdraw?
1: You want to make it better for them, right? I wanted to. Um, fix it and I couldn't and there was no when my children were younger and they fell and scraped their knee I could pull them aside and give them a band-aid and give them a kiss and it made it all better you know there wasn't much of anything in this world that Mom couldn't make better just with some TLC. And I, I couldn't make it better. And I felt very helpless, which um, I just didn't know what direction to go. I sought the um, uh, um, standard or or. Uh, typical ways that one can get help for a child who's this upset as she went to counseling. Um, And um, later on that summer, um, the counselor told me, she or the therapist told me, she had to um, tell me that Nellie had confided in her that she had tried to commit suicide. Um, And that... She had tried to hang herself in her bedroom and the object she was using broke and she was unsuccessful. And so again, I was so distressed by this. I thought, how could a child this age? 11. 11 years old. Children are afraid of things. And I think that they're afraid of things because they don't want to die. Right? Fear is their natural human response to danger. And so children present as very fearful because there are all these things in the world that could hurt or even kill them. And I I wondered if she could understand the magnitude of that. But I think I assumed she couldn't. But I didn't want to take any chances. Um, I took her um, uh, to the emergency room one day. Um, Actually was called, um, this would have been, I think, early in the fall, um, was called by the school and I think they had found her harming herself. And they said, um, you know, you should take her to the emergency room. I, I did. And we sat there for about nine hours waiting to see a psychiatrist who um, was not a um, a child specialist. It, um, he was just a psychiatrist on call. And Um, he said, the only thing I can do is, is put her on a three-day hold and there wouldn't really be any treatment there per se. And I talked to her and she, um, she said she'd be okay. Um, in this summer, backing up a bit here, um, When she was seeing the therapist, the therapist suggested that we make a contract um, that we would both sign where she agrees that she won't harm herself. And she did. She did sign it. And I think for some time she did not self-harm. In the fall, she went, um, she started middle school and things seemed to be looking up for her. The step or the bounce in her step sort of came back. I remember one day dropping her at school and sort of seeing her, seeing a difference. She was lighter on her feet and her tone was lighter. She got out of the car. Love you, mom. Like she had stopped saying, I love you when she was feeling very dark. Yeah, I was really encouraged. Um, and, um, And she joined the dance team at the school. Um, um, So I thought she was improving. She had some minor awkwardness with some other students. um, And she was, I think, sort of um, feeling her way into the social settings of middle school school. And um, looking forward to uh, trying out for, I guess, a permanent position or a, uh, in the competitive dance team for the school. Um, she wanted to stay after school each day to hang out with her friends. Um, so yeah, I really thought things were looking up for her.
0: And was she still being bullied by? people or was there a break in that or were you not kind of uh, informed of what was going on with that?
1: I believe that there was a break in the, the bullying. Um, but uh, she had still retained, I guess some of these unusual habits. Um, the, her counselor at the school said she would spend her break times alone um, drawing in her sketchbook. Um, and at one time, um, they actually found her in the bath. She wouldn't come out of the bathroom. And they said she was almost sort of catatonic. They called her father, and he had to um, come and get her. Um but and I don't.
0: You were divorced or separated at this time. Divorced. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think. Um, I know that there was an altercation with a, a student uh, where I, I think some playfulness turned into um, something, you know, uncomfortable. I guess you know they were throwing wads of paper at each other or something. And she threw a piece of food at him and he pushed her. He broke her headphones and the school called. And, um, when I picked her up from school, she, she basically didn't talk about it. I had to pull it out of her. Um, but she made like, it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it just got out of hand, mom. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, um, aside from one other episode um, that I didn't learn about until later, um, there was another bullying going on. There what? Was not any other I got bullying you. going on.
0: Okay. Uh, and uh, kids at that age are not really involved in social media, are they? Not that all kids are the same, but...
1: They were, and they are more than they should be. I really gotcha. think that um that kids at that age maybe can't handle the um turning the other, you know or turning away um sort of ignoring the haters, you know, uh, for kids that age is hard to do because they want the I think um they may seek validation from other kids mm-hmm. um and um and when that's not what they get when they get the opposite it probably stings a bit more and for nelly um, who was sensitive and i think self-conscious about her who knew she was a little different mhm um
0: but the but the primary um, struggles were in person Struggles rather than social media. I guess that that was the question.
1: To the best of my knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So what happened next?
1: Um. Well, a week later. Um. She died. She she took her own life. Um. She. Um. Let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. From. The summer, when I took her to the emergency room, or or late in the summer, um, the psychiatrist in the emergency room said, you know, try to, I know she's going to therapy, Mm -hmm. uh, try to take her to a psychiatrist, so... um, I, I did, going through my health insurance, found a psychiatrist who could see her, made an appointment. She was able to have a telehealth op- appointment. Additionally, at the time, I was working in behavioral health and was seeking um, the assistance of some of my colleagues who were friends who were trying to um, get um, some ABA therapy for her, um, uh, although typically it's only paid for by insurance for individuals who are on the autism spectrum, but they were uh, trying to get an insurance approval for some therapy for her. And
0: what does ABA stand for
1: Applied Behavior Analysis. Okay. Um, But she did see this psychiatrist. The psychiatrist said, I think she's depressed. Um, I think that she will recover. But I think that... Um, some medication may help. Um, it was just Nellie and I in this in this appointment, which if I didn't mention was a telehealth appointment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I asked about the medication she was proposing, which I believe was Zoloft, uh, its potential side effects. And I said, well, I can't really make this decision right here on the spot. Um, can we... Um, discuss it as a family and give you an answer in our next appointment she said absolutely um, so I did discuss it with, with Nellie I discussed it with her father and the three of us agreed it would be worthwhile to try um, but she did, she never did make it to that next appointment so um, her birthday was coming up and it's now the beginning of November and um She was supposed to be with me until Wednesday morning of that week, and Thursday was her birthday. So I um, proposed that her last evening with me, Tuesday, uh, we go out for sushi um, and make a small birthday celebration. She asked me if we could do it on Sunday because... um, then it wasn't rushed after school. Um, we went to the arts and crafts store. We bought her some paints and canvases and um, went out for lunch for sushi. Um, we came home, and she wanted to paint one of the canvases, and I told her uh, she had to fold her laundry <laughs> before, mm-hmm. um, and she didn't put up a fight about it, which I remember thinking was unusual. She <laughs> normally you know, would have pushed back on that or <clears throat> would have simply um, uh, sort of dilly dallied about it. Mm-hmm. But I figured she wanted to get to the painting, so she put away her laundry, and then she painted a picture. Um, and she finished it in the evening, and she brought it um, into the bedroom to show me and, uh, and my then, um, partner now husband, um, the painting was of a, um, a cityscape next to a park, uh, with a shadowy figure in between the two of them. She was really proud of it. Uh, but she asked if she could put it in the, um, in, the, in my bathroom, where the cats couldn't get to it. She was concerned the cats would l- lick the paint and get sick. And I said, sure, put it in there to dry. Um, I asked her to clean up, and um, and she went in the bathroom and started cleaning her brushes. Um, and, um, and she was sort of getting paint all over the bathroom. I asked her to clean that up, too. And in doing that, she'd had her bathroom sink running for several minutes and she came and said there's water coming from under the sink so I went and I I looked under her vanity and and lo and behold the sink was leaking the vanity and now I'm distraught and, oh, damn it I'm gonna have to buy a new vanity and and I, I said you just finish doing what you're doing and and I'll deal with this and I went back into my room and and kind of looked at the prices of vanities, and um, uh, put a bowl under there to collect water. And um, and she went back to her room. By the time I um, by the time I came back around to her, she was lying in her bed, and it looked like she was dozing off. Her television was on, and I would normally have made her turned it off, but uh, turn it off. But it seems like when I went in there. I woke her up by going in there, and I sort of said, "Oh, okay, good night, honey." And she said, "Good night, mom." Um, I had only recently started allowing her to sleep with her door closed again. I had been mm-hmm. requiring that she keep her door open <clears throat> when she was sleeping. For I, I just didn't want her closed in a room. Right. You know, there had been this this history of self-harm. She had once brought me a photo frame from her room um, that I think um, maybe had a drawing in it, but it was like an eight by 10 frame. And she said, would you just take this? Um, I don't want to have the glass around in case I get into that, um, into that, mood um and and i did i took it but i also took it as positive that she was making an effort that she didn't want to harm herself or at at Mm -hmm. least it seemed she didn't want to but um after that night um i um got up and went into her room earlier than I would have. I would have typically gone into her room about 6.15 in the morning to wake her up and start getting her ready for school. But for whatever reason, right after I got up, I went in there and it was five minutes to six. I opened the door and I thought she was kneeling by her bedside. And I thought that was unusual. And I remember saying, what are you doing honey um and then I realized that she wasn't kneeling that she was hanging from the upper bunk of her bed um I I think I had a empty or almost empty glass of water in my hand I remember I tossed it and ran over to her and started trying to pick her up off the noose. And, um, that's the worst moment of my life. I can't
0: imagine. I'm so, I'm so sorry.
1: Um, I knew when I touched her that she was gone, but, um, we called 911 and, and, um, they were unable to revive her. It's, um, there's a great deal of regret. Um, what did I miss? Um, What could I maybe have done that I wasn't already doing? Or if I'd known then what I know now? Because while I knew she was still in need of help, that she was going to start medication, um, But I thought that she had overcome the very darkest period.
0: I mean, it sounds like as you describe what it was. And my God, listening to you share how involved you were with her and how self-aware you were about getting her help. I mean, I can't imagine a, a parent doing any more than you did but we're going to blame ourselves, we're going to blame ourselves. And I I imagine there's nothing that anybody can say.
1: I don't know if that will ever be lifted from me. Um, Has it
0: it lessened?
1: I would say it comes and goes. Um, I think that a parent that loses a child feels this way no matter what the conditions. If they lose a child to um, an illness, you know, why didn't I push harder with the doctors and get another opinion? If they lose a child to an accident, why did I let them go? Why did I let go of their hand on the street? Um, What hits me profoundly is how did I raise a child who wanted to die it feels sometimes like the most abysmal failure that i i brought up a child who wanted to die
0: and what are specifically the the mean things that you tell yourself about that the you know quote unquote failures that you put on yourself?
1: That I was too involved in my own life. I had been in a relationship for about a year. I a little over a year. I had met someone a year after my divorce. Was I too focused on this new on this new relationship? But he, by this time, was living with us and was a part of our life as a family. Um, And um, was I too hard on her? Was she too sensitive to take the, I wanted to be a real no-nonsense parent. I didn't want to raise and everybody gets a trophy. Mm-hmm. child i wanted her to be self sufficient and i wanted her to understand that sometimes life is tough and um and i remember that um earlier that spring she had been there were just consistent problems typical kid stuff just not getting the chores done mm-hmm. um you know not following up on things. And I had threatened that she would not be allowed to go to the annual convention for her youth group if she kept this up. And finally, one day I said, I, well, I did give her a final warning. This is the final warning. If stuff like this happens again. Um, and then finally I, I said, you can't go this year. Um, it hurts so bad that I didn't let her go. I wish I had let her go. Was I too hard on her? She was so sad when she couldn't go. I remember her crying, "I'll do anything, please just let me go." And I and I felt like it was really important for me to stick to my guns. Like if I had threatened this thing, I had to follow through and I couldn't back down.
0: I mean, that's that's structured Parenting. That that is now I'm not a parent, but you know, one of the things that that I do know from support groups, therapy, etc., is when you set boundaries with people, if those boundaries are crossed, there should be consequences. That is a healthy part of not enabling someone's behavior. But how could you not as a parent take that and weaponize that against yourself?
1: I don't know if it is possible. Like I said, you know, I've learned um, since then that a parent who loses a child blames themselves almost every time. And um, so I accept that it's probably something I can't avoid uh, feeling this way. And I hope that it softens over time.
0: It's been how many years?
1: Four years. Um, I wish I knew now what I knew then. I see that, <clears throat> like that moment with not letting her go for that weekend convention, was did I lack compassion for her? As maybe a, a special needs child. Now, like I said, I didn't view her as a special needs child. I viewed her as a gifted child. Now, back in another life, in my first career, I was a public school teacher, and we're taught that a gifted child is a special needs child. Um, but I viewed her as a special needs child in the the context of her being a gifted child. Mm-hmm. And it was really only in retrospect, ironically enough, that I worked in the field of autism that I went you know she she was probably on the spectrum a bit. Should I have been more compassionate um, should I have set more realistic boundaries with her i'll I'll always second guess my decisions with her because I guess you just wish that there was something that you had done differently that maybe would have resulted in another outcome. Um, I wonder sometimes, though, if the night before that happened, if I had just gone and sat on her bed with her or curled up with her for a while, could it have been avoided that night? And if it were avoided that night, would we? Would it have happened another night? Or would we be? Uh, um, would. Would we be facing a suicide crisis on a regular basis? Uh, I've come to know since then uh, other parents who had gone through multiple attempted suicides with children who eventually completed suicide, whether as teens or as adults. I learned that there are parents of other 11-year-old children who have taken their own lives. It just wasn't something I could conceive of. Um, She chose a permanent solution to what was probably a temporary problem. But I, I, at 11 years old, almost 12, I can't believe that she could grasp the enormity or the permanence of the decision that she was making. I think she just wanted to get out of pain. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't just break my heart. I mean, it wrings and crushes my heart to think the pain that she was in. And, and that I, I couldn't, I couldn't make it stop, you know, I couldn't help her.
0: So it, it sounds like, um, of course, my, my neighbor's dog never barks. (laughs) Of course, it's going to bark when I hit record. (laughs) Um, So it sounds like you did um, connect with other people, um, Facebook groups.
1: Um, talk, I-
0: talk about the the, the process of um, initiating contact. Uh, was it something you sought out on your own? Was it something therapists encouraged you to do? I'm going to talk about the the whole process of what do I do now.
1: Um. In the days immediately following her death, I was, let's just say, I cashed in on any supportive friendship collateral I had built through my entire life because it was an army of 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 love that saw me through those days and weeks. There were, there were friends at my home w- within maybe an hour. And, um, and they didn't leave until I was good and ready to let them go. Um, um, and those initial days it was like i was <clears throat> carried through so that i could um survive it um a abundance of love unlike anything i've ever known just sort of wrapped me up and insulated me uh, in that time. And that was the beginning of the of the healing process of accepting the condolences and expressions and um and grief of those around me and and sympathy. Um um
0: what what re- recalling those moments and in those interactions what did the what specifically did those expressions of love and support look like and what did it feel like in your skin mm-hmm. to experience those
1: in the that initial day after finding her um i remember being in sort of a a trance, I remember feeling it physically, like I uh, uh, couldn't eat or, or I I was just sort of numb. And I had to, of course, talk to the the police and the coroner and, and, and the house filled up. Um, My, my priest came and stayed until they took her away. And, um, and in that initial day, my dearest friend's um, helped me to um, write an announcement to put on Facebook because I figured that was the best and fastest way to get mm-hmm. this sort of news out. Um, another friend started a um, a GoFundMe to raise money for uh, services for her, um, and I remember thinking, uh, is, is sort of arguing about it. Like I, I don't, we can we can pull together the money for a service, but no people just want to help. Yeah and you have to let them. And um, we went to bed that night. By the time I went to bed, a dear friend who I like to call my soul mother, um, who lives in Paso Robles, uh, um, had dropped everything and driven down here. She had lost her son when he was a I don't know, about 34 years old, 33, who was a a dear childhood friend of mine, a college roommate, and um, she dropped everything and drove down here and started sort of managing the house, you know, taking, people were bringing food, and she made sure that there were, um, plates and silverware and napkins and food out on the table at all times and and that people were welcomed so I could sort of sit on mm-hmm. a lily pad and just grieve and accept guests. But she was there by the end of that first night and I couldn't even go upstairs. I couldn't be anywhere near it. And um, so we... Um, my significant other, he, he drove out to Target. He got an air mattress and we all slept in the living room. Um, my ex-husband came in and picked up, um, my baby girl, Emma, who was nine at the time and, um, um, took her to his home and, uh, And Randall and I slept on an air mattress while my friend Kate slept on the sofa next to us. And I woke up the next morning and um, I picked up my phone and there were hundreds of notifications on Facebook. And I started reading through them and I just burst into tears, you know, and the dam just opened and I... And it wasn't as much out of the pain and grief, but out of being so deeply touched by the sentiments of people who truly cared and, um, and were grieving as well. And I, in those moments, I didn't feel judged and I wasn't judging myself and i didn't i i just felt the intent you know the the sympathy and support
0: i would imagine you know in the immediate aftermath of that it's probably as you blame yourself it's probably really hard to feel that you are lovable <laughs> And and I'm just imagining what it what it would be like when you when those mean voices are saying shoulda, coulda, woulda and then to get this avalanche of unconditional love, um I can't imagine um what that what that would feel like.
1: Well there's a bit of a dissonance there, isn't there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't I didn't hate myself. I gave myself enough slack of mm-hmm. I couldn't have known what I didn't know,
0: so then that changed over time and the and the self blame started to creep in, or well, when guess, did when did that start to to come in?
1: I would say it came in immediately, but there is an ebb and a flow to that I see there are times when I forgive myself, and there are times when I blame myself, and everything in between. There are times when I blame this child who I never met for bullying her. Um, there was a, a text message I found on her phone in exchange, which I presume was with somebody from school, and she said, hi this is, uh, she said, hi, um, I can prove to you that I know how to play piano. And the person said, who is this? And she said, it's Nellie. And they said something like, well, it's kind of weird and stalkery that you're texting me. Um, And so I'm just going to go now. And Nellie had responded like, sorry, with a blushing emoji. And that was it, that was the conversation. But that was the Friday before she took her own life. Was that the final straw? And where is where's is that kid? You know, I don't I never knew who it was. And if I if I met that individual would I want to 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 to, to throttle them? Would I hate them? There are moments where I hate this imaginary child who's probably now also 16 years old, still a child. Um, or would I, would I have the capacity to forgive? I don't know. Because I know that my feelings go, go back and forth. I know that there's a, a part of me that wants them to feel bad for what they did. And I wish I I didn't have that um, almost vindictive feeling towards another human being, no less a child. But I would be lying if I said I wasn't angry. But that anger is equal opportunity because I'm angry at them. I'm angry at myself. And, and I'm angry at her. I let it go. You know, we're taught in ourself, in our uh, support group to, um, to take things like this, and um, take an inventory of them, and, and ask to have them removed. And um, and so I do that. And then I do it again. And I do it again. And if the, uh, it's just what I have to do.
0: And is that a typical dynamic in grief?
1: I think grief and anger are um, uh, grouped or... Uh, part of a cluster mm-hmm. of emotions that kind of fall under the umbrella of grief or that venn diagram of of grief and anger and sorrow and um,
0: compassion do you recall any particular moment of interacting with friends? afterwards that uh, stand out among all the support you got that felt like this is what somebody really needs when they're in my shoes. Thank God for this person.
1: The interactions in the uh, days following her death and, and weeks, I should say, um in my head are a bit of a collage. Um but there are some I think some key things. Um my my soul mother dropping everything, a business owner, um dropping everything and driving three and a half hours, and spending a week down here just to take care of me. She had gone through the same thing just, I think, eight years earlier.
0: Had her son taken his life, or did he die of something Tragic else?
1: accident. Yeah. Um. One of my dearest friends, I think who might have been the first friend to... To arrive at the house, I called her. And she was driving um, across town um, to West Los Angeles on uh, 405 Freeway. And I remember her saying, oh, my God. And she just turned around. She just got off, turned around, called her clients and said, you won't see me today. Got to my house. And and, and she didn't know what to do because there was still— paramedics and police in the house she went I remember glancing up and seeing her in my yard picking up dog poop just scooping up the dog poop from the yard probably thinking she's not going to want to have to do this and and then she uh, set up a um take them a meal it's like a Kind of like a GoFundMe for food mm-hmm. where people make arrangements. Okay, I'm coming on Tuesday with lunch right. and, um, and, and made sure that there were two solid weeks booked that I did not have to, to think about feeding myself or anyone in my home. That stands out to me a lot. A lot of people said there are no words. There aren't. I, a lot of people would, I could see them trying to find words and they just, uh, they'd shake their heads and, and, you know, shrug and there's just not, and I, I know there are no words. I appreciated that so much when someone said, there's just nothing I can say." The saw. honesty. Yeah. I'm not going to give you a canned response. I'm not going to say what we say. When, you know, great aunt Millie dies, she had a good life. You know, she mm-hmm. she didn't, she had a short life. Um, She was gone. I knew probably the next day that it was... Important that it not be in vain, that somehow it was remembered, that she was remembered in some way that maybe um, another child would think twice about doing the same thing, thinking uh, it can't just be senseless. Right. Uh, We have to find a way for her loss not to be in vain um a lot of parents start nonprofits if if they've lost a child mm-hmm. um uh, or um they lobby for legislation mm-hmm. um in in our case n- i haven't done anything so um you know so far reaching as that but um i hear about little ways that it's touched people. Um, a friend had struggled with um, with depression her whole life, and um, I had only known her. She was really an acquaintance, friend of a friend, and she had been in a terribly dark place. Um, and And she said, "That's it. I I will never." go that far again. I'll never let it get that far again. I'll take my medication. I'll I'll go to my appointments. It's um uh a friend of Nellie's had um I think entertained thoughts uh, and was struggling um with gender identity. And um and I think the 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 situation made that individual rethink that and never really consider taking their own life um i hope that her story um is recalled or remembered um mostly to kids that are considering this and how, um, how just unfiltered tragic it is. Well, there's a, um, a scholarship in her memory through her youth group where kids who are intending to go into, um, beha- behavioral sciences, uh, um, uh, uh, mental health, um, can't apply for the scholarship in her name. Um, I would say that's probably the most um, formal or organized um, memorial for her. Um, and is
0: there a link that people can donate to that?
1: Um no. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Uh I not that I can share. I just imagine
0: the a lot of the listeners are like what what can I do? You know, your your story is so moving and that's an understatement. Um and I think to to some degree society as a whole we feel a very um a sliver of that uh, powerlessness and sadness, even if we don't personally know somebody that's completed suicide. Mm-hmm.
1: I think there's scarcely a person in our society who is in touch, yeah. um, directly or indirectly, by suicide. Um, I remember at 12 years old, um one of my brother's childhood buddies took his own life, and he was, I think, 17, and about to um, go to college and and had a, a bad breakup. And his mother, like me, found him after hanging. And um, I remember being um, that, I remember the tragedy of that funeral. I remember so clearly his mother crying over his grave. I remember the hundreds and hundreds of, of young people all that age there and, and just so heartbroken. I remembered my brother crying and crying, and, and it was he was my big brother, you know. He was like 18 at the time, and I don't think I had ever seen him cry. Um and I think back on that now so often um, because there's. I remember wondering, what do they do now? Because there's the whole life after. There's. There's. How do we go on? Mm-hmm.
0: Um. What? What are? I'm sorry. Finish your thought.
1: Oh no, that's okay.
0: What are some of the things that um, are hard to hear or see or look at, things that remind you of it, or, or both positively and negatively? Maybe things that um, bring up positive memories of her, or are they all sad?
1: There are some things that bring back positive memories that are almost like little family tidbits um you share some yeah yeah she used to walk in um and putting her arms up to her chest and say t-rex hugs you know it's really silly and um and anytime we see a tyrannosaurus rex (laughs) or a painting of one we always think of Nellie yeah. and T Rex hugs, and and her artwork. She actually was um, she was a gifted uh, a visual artist, and I have a painting in my living room that she did. That um, gosh, it, it's just it's so haunting now. It's a, a silhouette of what looks like a, the head and shoulders of a a girl and hair blowing in the wind, but inside the silhouette is this landscape with trees. Um, I'll share it with you. Um, Yeah, please do. And I'd be, um, you know, happy for you to share it with your listeners. Um, How, you know, how deep. Um, There was so much... um, that I found in her sketchbook after she died. I never opened it and looked at the pictures unless she wanted to show me something Mm -hmm. because um, I wanted to respect her privacy. Um, Another regret, should I have not done that? Because some of it was very dark and maybe I would have been more alarmed. Maybe I would have gone ahead and sent her for a three-day hold um, or sent her to an inpatient facility if I had seen it, I don't know. But um, but some of that artwork was also very clearly her trying to embrace the positive. Mm-hmm. She had drawn a picture and written um, uh, the two fear stands for uh, forget everything and run or face everything and rise. I had never said that to her. She heard it somewhere. Um, and and it was as if she was trying to encourage herself. She had a terrific sense of things that were silly. Uh, she loved to be silly. Um, there are some things that are a mix of bitter and sweet. Um, when she was just a toddler and my father was still living, he would come to our home and probably about three nights a week just to hang out, have dinner, spend time. She was his first grandchild and um my family is this big music family i was a a public school music teacher my father was a public school music teacher my grandfather was a public school music teacher all here in los angeles and um and my father loved the movie the music man and um when Nellie was a toddler she, they would sit and watch it over and over and over yeah. again, and she would jump up and down during seventy six trombones, and he <laughs> would take pictures and video of her, and he'd say, "Nelly, you want to watch da 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 da?" And she would, uh, she would jump up and down and get excited, and so I think of the two of them in that. You know, sitting on my couch watching that movie together, it's it is bittersweet because it's a beautiful memory. Um, I I have somewhere a video of the two of them when she started taking piano lessons at first. I think she was about six, and she was playing her part, and he was sitting on that bench next to her playing the accompaniment part, and they were just you know playing this this song together on the piano, and. Um, I have so many pictures of him sitting in a rocking chair in her room with her asleep and him with a, a a book and he's fallen asleep too, (laughs) reading a book to her. And I like to think and hope that they're that way, some, somewhere together. Um, There are um, sometimes something can feel especially dark and and challenging. I never realized until she died how much hanging imagery is everywhere in our society and how much it's um, even used for comic purposes. And I think god how many people are out there that would never find this funny. I'm I I don't resent it because they can't know what they don't know. And I wouldn't want them to have to know it this way. Um but um uh I recently was kind of looking through scenes of one of my favorite old um, Jerry Lewis movies, Mm -hmm. Cracking Up. The whole opening scene, he's trying to hang himself. And um, and it's a big physical comic scene. And... uh, I'm, like I said, I don't resent, but I get so, it's, it's not funny. You know, I get so, I guess angry. Um, and so there's this this hanging imagery all over our society. I think when I see somebody being unkind, You know, I wonder if other kids had been kinder to her, would it have made a difference? But it really has put an emphasis for me on how important it is to be kind, even to people that maybe I don't think deserves it, you know, or deserve it. Um,
0: And I would say to anybody out there who bullied somebody, when you were younger, or even as an adult, it's never too late to contact them and apologize. There was a kid in high school that I bullied, even though he was a foot taller than me. He was just a sweet, sweet kid. He was a, a year younger than me. And I hated, and I couldn't, didn't know it at the time, I hated his happiness and his innocence. And I would attack it verbally. Sure. And one day he'd had enough and he kicked my ass. And I even knew at the time I, I fucking deserved this. But I got a hold of him when I was in my 20s and, uh, and said, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. You did not deserve that. And um, I highly recommend anybody who is living with the guilt of having done that uh to to do that and not only for them but for yourself
1: do you mind if i ask what did he say
0: he said um you know something along the lines of um thank you um I appreciate that. I think, it, I think it was more minimized than that, but mm-hmm. uh, he, he held no bitterness tor- towards me, that, at, at least outwardly. But um, it, uh, I still feel terrible about it because I wonder, did I permanently damage this person? from that
1: so like one o'clock in the morning last night my daughter walks into my room and wakes me up I think I had just fallen asleep and um, she's feeling a little blue And just mom will you come lie on my bed with me and we ended up sitting up and talking until, I think, 3 o'clock in the morning. So there's your parent of the week award in there because <laughs> mm-hmm. I had to get her up and get her to school at 6.30 this morning. Mm-hmm. But um, she said, everybody's got their trauma. I can't believe this kid is 13 years old. Everybody's got their trauma. And how we ingest it, I think ingest might have word, been the word she used or how we take it is be kind of becomes our personal um uh our personal dysfunction um she even though she says her memory of her sister is is fading she understands her her personal demons link back to that she has um OCD and um uh why <laughs> why you know why wouldn't somebody end up uh developing um a uh, a disorder around an ex- you know an extreme fear of not being able to Control terrible things happening yeah, to you.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And so she she has a, a fear of getting ill. You know. I think the recipe of that loss and then COVID came into the mixture, and now she has this just crippling fear of getting sick. And she's gotten a lot of therapy therapy for it, and she is really applying the tools i think sometimes i don't give her enough credit for how much work she's put into it because sometimes she just says, <laughs> she says mom you drank for a long time and you didn't stop until you were good and ready to mm-hmm. you weren't you didn't just snap out of it i'm not going to just snap out of this it's incredibly insightful sometimes i think that that emma is this living dissonance between this um sort of profound um, inf- inflec- um introspection that's the word yeah. I'm looking for um and deep thought um sort of butting up against a very typical teenager's impatience and yeah. and um and, and 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 desire for instant gratification oh, yeah. um And um, she's a a pretty remarkable little girl for having um, such incredible insight because she really did remind me that, you know, everybody's got their thing. I think she battled with that because kids would say to her, I'm so sorry, my grandma died and and I, I miss her a lot. And she would think to herself, I don't think she'd say anything out loud, but she would think to herself, it's not the same. It is not the same. That's your grandma. She's supposed to die for before you. She was 75 years old. My sister was 11. Um, She is, both her and my husband have an extreme aversion to any vocal distress from me. If I drop something or stub my finger and I, they it sends them into almost a panic because they both woke up that morning to the sounds of me screaming oh, wow. in the next room. And so the trauma of this experience for the two of them is very much focused ar- around hearing me make that discovery. And um, um, my husband was a field artillery specialist in the Army and already has artillery ear and and such aversion. um to to sounds, he's very tuned into um, either you know conflicting sounds in a room, um, and and sounds like this that are actually um, you know dis, distressful. They uh, they're the source of, of in many times his anxieties, um, and so it was really two three years. I, I want to say it's kind of tapered off this year. I think that any distressed sound from me was a terrible trigger for both, both of them.
0: Is there anything you'd like to share before we wrap up?
1: There's, gosh, there's so much I, I would, I would want to share that I can't verbalize. I think back on the conversation we've been sitting here having for the last hour or so. Um, and, And, uh, you know, worrying, have I said, expressed everything the way I would want people to to understand it? Have I been clear? And I hope I haven't said anything that would hurt or offend anybody.
0: (laughs) No, would not.
1: This is, um, I know that there are probably people who would judge me. Who would say I blame the parents? Um, I know that the people who matter, um, the people who tell me, this is not your fault. You you did everything you knew how to do. But I think something that a friend of mine had expressed um, on Facebook when it happened was these parents did, I think she said, everything right and it happened anyway it's we can't stop suicide it happened anyway and um one thing i think there is so much onus or responsibility put on the person who contemplates suicide to uh get oh the help is available just call just call you know if you know somebody who is contemplating suicide who is expressing si- suicidal ideation you can call the suicide hotline it's not just for those who are contemplating but you can intervene perhaps Mm. we I hope can mitigate tragedies such as these Um, we get we get this life to live and and um, it's filled with a lot of joy and sorrow and difficulty and pain sometimes and sometimes extreme, um, euphoria, all these things that I was before Nellie died. Um, you know, a teacher, a mother, um, a, a wife, a, a sister, a friend, someone who's silly, um, someone who, um, Uh, has to uh, fight between wanting to correct grammar and wanting to have friends. Um, (laughs) Someone who um, plays piano um, and uh, likes my cat. All of these things, this, you know, this person, um, I'm still all of those things. Um, And all of those things kind of make up a, a, a big salad. I don't know how this metaphor came to me a couple years ago, but it did. And I like food metaphors, so I continue to use it. Ingredients in a big old salad and all these things are in there sitting next to each other. And this isn't an, another ingredient. Um, don't let it be the dressing. Some days that has to be my mantra because it can't permeate everything else, but it does need to have its space there in the mix. There's still joy to be had in this life. I'm very grateful to have um, a husband who loves me unconditionally, and my wonderful, beautiful daughter, Emma, who I think, um, even with her own struggles, is quite a remarkable little person. You know, some days we have to take it one step, one breath, one next right move at a time. But uh, but we go on in those moments. Um, I'm not excused from the bad moments that will mm-hmm. still happen, but I still get to have the good ones. And I think that's important for me and I think anyone to remember.
0: Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. And I... I feel like I am much more enlightened on um, the the topic, and um, just thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Many, many thanks to Kathleen. I really like that salad analogy. I think so often we feel like when there's a part of ourselves that is painful, we feel like we need to erase it, that that's the only option, rather than, uh, I don't know, making friends with it. Uh, can you Facebook friend your pain? Speaking of Facebook's uh, facebooks, when am I my father? My dad used to call the beer Heineken Heinekens. You want a Heinekens? Um, I will put Kathleen's Facebook uh, link under the show notes. So if you want to access any of the stuff that she talked about that's going to be the easiest way because some of the links are difficult to get through the thing uh, the uh, charity link um, has proved to be a a little difficult to access directly and um, yeah I think that's I think I addressed all that stuff Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Jay Money. And uh, they write, I love hearing my 11-year-old black lab retriever snore, grunt, and huff when she's excited. Even now, I love how she grunts and grumbles because she's grown slightly cranky in her old age. I love the feeling of nice, freshly laundered bedsheets. I love the feel of the sun on my skin, the sound of ducks quacking in the pond. I love when my husband kisses me on the forehead. I love knowing I am loved. Those are awesome. Thank you for that. Gracie has uh, gotten quite spoiled in her three years or three or four years living with me. I think three years. But um, she'll like uh, kick and kind of huff when I'm not petting her exactly how she wants to be petted. And if I could communicate with her, I think the first thing I would say is, uh, just remember, you're a fucking stray and a little more gratitude would be nice. This is from the fear survey filled out by, uh, how do you work this thing? Uh, They identify as agender and uh, share things you fear. I've recently come to the realization that I do not want to identify as a woman. I've always cringed internally at being called a woman. It makes me uncomfortable. So I've opened up to the possibility of being under the transgender umbrella. I neither feel male nor female and don't even know exactly what that means. I just feel like a person. As soon as I had this shift in perspective of my gender identity, I was flooded with these fears, that I've spent too much time online and have just accidentally brainwashed myself into this belief, that I do not really identify as non-binary, that I'm doing it for attention to be viewed as special, interesting, quirky, progressive, rebellious, just trying to escape from shame, etc., that my friends and family would not accept me as non-binary and that it would upset them. That I would be deemed ugly if I became more androgynous presenting. That I am confusing my non-binary identity with my long-standing body dysmorphia, interests, or style preference. That I merely fetishize androgyny and don't actually want to be androgynous. And that my desire to be androgynous presenting is a result of internalized misogyny. Wow, those are great. And thank you for that, that peek. Into uh, the brain uh, that uh, that you are running around with, and the uh, the complex issue of uh, of gender. This is from the voice in your head survey, and this is filled out by um, a gender gender neutral person who uh, calls themselves Minx. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? And the voice in my head is mostly what I can describe as an angry old man, coupled with a harpy, with some judgmental teenager thrown in. It's a party every day, truly. Some of the things these terrible voices say, you don't deserve a relationship because you suck at relating to anyone, and they wouldn't live up to your ridiculous standards anyway. Your therapist really does think you're crazy, but she's nice because you pay her. You're terrible at your job, and you're probably getting fired. You're probably a sociopath and not autistic at all. What is wrong with you that you can't decide on your gender when there aren't that many that go with your body, dumbass? You kids don't respect you. Your kids don't respect you or want to be around you, for that matter. You're just generally a terrible human. Let that sink in. Oh, man, man. Uh, and then they, they add, it's really brutal in there. I try to ignore these voices, use my therapy tools to deal, but some of the days, like maybe half of them, I don't know, those voices are loud, and I find it difficult to drown them out. I try, though, and that has to count for something, maybe. The voices would disagree. That was awesome. Thank you for that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Tim C., and about his depression, uh, bipolar depression, he writes, my, my bed requires constant attention. That is what we should call it. I'm not depressed. I, I happen to own a high-maintenance bed. Um, about being a drug addict, the bar will pull up to my car window when it's ready. Snapshot from his life. My childhood vacation spot in New Hampshire is a wonderful seaside town. I like watching the drawbridge go up and down, playing 80s arcade games, and climbing rocks as seagulls landed around me. But then my mother's car pulled away, and I was left with a sexual predator at 17. I wanted my first job, and you wanted to grope and offer me prostitutes as long as you could watch. I am glad to have never given you the satisfaction. Thank you for sharing that, Tim, and I'm Glad along with you that uh, you did not give him that opportunity. Um, This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Wandering Biku. And they write, Since about the age of 11, I've spent my life trying to fit in, bending, masking, mirroring, faking, being bullied and belittled, and getting myself into plenty of shit because of it. What I love is at the age of 45, I've met someone who genuinely accepts me for myself. And what's more, I believe her. I'm a middle-aged man now discovering who the real me is. I feel safe and secure in a relationship for the first time. And it's amazing. Love it. Love it. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, I have top secret security clearance, and then parentheses, my only claim to fame, and I can't tell anyone. Uh, He identifies as asexual. He's in his 30s, says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, He writes, I had an older male cousin molest uh me and have sex in various positions throughout the ages of six to nine i don't remember exactly how many times it happened but i figure that it is likely in the area of 50 events he made me want it so bad telling me that i was being allowed into his very secret and special club i was so proud even though i was totally confused whenever i would ask him about what we were doing what the white sticky stuff was, etc. He'd give me answers, but at that age I just couldn't understand what was happening. Sick bastard had me whenever he wanted. The hardest feelings surrounding this for me are the times I vividly remember begging him for us to go play. As an adult, I can stack a pile of logic up a mile high as to why... I shouldn't feel disgusted with myself, but when it's dealing with trauma about yourself, the, real, the rules don't seem to apply. Eventually, our parents figured out something was up. In retrospect, probably because of how excited I was for bed some nights when we would stay over at this cousin's house. I was told, quote, what he is doing to you is wrong, he won't do it anymore, unquote, and that was it. Not another word was ever spoken. A little therapy would have been nice, but at least he didn't rape me anymore, and I suspect that this early abuse planted the seeds that would eventually lead me into a career of criminal justice. So I guess there is a silver lining to that cloud if you look hard enough. In my pre-teens and teens, I tried to have sex with every friend I had, and I was relentless. I had no concept of predatory grooming, and it wasn't until 12 that I actually started sleeping with other guys. We were of the same age and kids, so I let myself try to believe that I wasn't preying on them, but instead acting out in unhealthy ways. I remember one night at 16, one of my best friends stopped me dead in my tracks when he asked me if all I wanted him for was sex, explaining that he felt that I was using him and that he wanted more than to be someone's toy he was so right it knocked the breath out of me i was absolutely using him and many of my other friends for sex i was always the gentle brainy kid just trying to keep his head down in high school and i think other people didn't call me out but um call me out like he did because nobody wanted to be the one that made the quiet friend in the group cry i believe that by calling me out he really helped me change I wish I knew where he was today. I would thank him. I started looking for proper consent as opposed to often resorting to wearing people down and started to finally allow motions to mix with sexual feelings, to be more human. If others, if other listeners find themselves um, being used like he was, I urge you to call it like it is, with your abuser if they are a good person reading from the wrong playbook it might just be the thing they need to hear Uh, any positive experiences with the abuser Uh, no there really isn't sometimes I still have to see him and I do my best to tolerate it to keep peace in the family and because I love my aunt and uncle but I hate every minute of being in the same town as him he is one of the only people I truly hate deepest, darkest thoughts, despite my criminal justice background and my personal experience as a sexual abuse victim, I often fantasize about gentle sex with preteen girls. Um, and the parentheses, I am choking back the urge to vomit right now. This is the first time I've ever admitted this and I feel so nauseous and disgusted at myself. God, I hate myself so bad right now. Uh, and parentheses. I do my best to not let these thoughts linger in my mind, and I actually think I might take my life before hurting a child like this, but still the idea that it possibly could happen, that these thoughts could grow and I could lose control, it scares me so badly. I'm crying just thinking about this one you are going so deep buddy on this podcast and this is i know some of this stuff has got to be i mean clearly you're saying that it's it's hard to bring up and uh i and the listeners appreciate you airing this very very uh, these very very difficult topics and about the most recent thing that you wrote i just want to say you know um Escalation, you know, when somebody is a predator, um, especially an adult predator, their behavior will escalate and it doesn't sound like your behavior is escalating. So, um, it sounds like it is just the fantasy that your brain was gifted and you know, if, if, if you're not trying to bring it into your real life, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Make peace with that because we cannot change what turns us on. At least I, I don't think it's possible. I, I've never met anybody who, who could. I mean, we might discover new things that turn us on. Um, I wonder sometimes, did I read this sentence, if all of these thoughts... And events are a reason why I was sexually active as a teen and young adult, but now, entering my middle age, I identify as asexual. Darkest Secrets. I remember around the age of 10, myself and a couple of other boys would regularly convince one of their sisters, who was younger than us, to pee her pants. I don't know why we did this, but I know I was definitely an instigator, and we would get a kick out of the event every time we could get her to do it. I worry that this has scarred her. I wish I could say sorry and for her to know how much I mean it. I don't know if I should try to reach out to her or if it's something she no longer thinks about. Maybe it would be selfish of me to reach out in an attempt to ease my regrets because what if it resurfaces regressed memories for her? That would be a good thing, I think, to talk to your therapist or or if you're in a support group, um, people who... um, whose opinions and experience you trust. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sex with girls and women peeing themselves. Writing that makes me feel like taking up heavy drinking. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am really sorry to my friends and their siblings for the pain I caused. I hope you can see it wasn't malicious and that I was operating from a skewed framework. What, if anything, do you wish for to never again feel any attraction to underage people? This is a pill I would take without hesitation. Have you shared these things with others? My spouse knows the basics of my history with sexual abuse and that I had a lot of guy partners early on, but she takes it in stride. I can't imagine telling anyone about my sexual exploitation fears. Can you even imagine how a conversation like that would go? How do you feel after writing these things down? Very broken and very much like someone I should be locking up for life. It's funny because reading this, I get the, the, the vibe of a sensitive, caring soul with a conscience who has been through a lot and is making the planet a better place. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? I guess I would just say, I know how incredibly painful it is to have a strong conscience and be living with these intrusive and illegal thoughts. Know that you are validated. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And then finally, these are some loves from KG. And they write, I love seeing stuffed animals and cute toys and car windows that clearly don't belong to a child. I love how it feels to be appreciated for listening. Is that selfish? I do not think that is selfish at all. The world needs good listeners. I love, however frequently it might happen, feeling as though the work I've done to deal with my own issues is recognizably providing something for somebody else. Oh, I love that one. I love the feeling of pained but enthusiastic acceptance of the full range of experience that follows a period of denial or numbing, taking the worst in with the good and finding a sense of beautiful contrast. I think you just outdid the last one. I love realizing that a new friend has moved into feels-good-to-be-near territory and out of this job interview demands the full extent of my powers of anxiety. I love seeing people who have abandoned all embarrassment about playing or communicating with their dog, like there's a barrier of pet that governs the dynamic for most people, but some treat theirs like a little brother or sister. I love listening to somebody dredge up deeply painful personal traumas or vividly laying out their disorder for a listening audience, only for the host reading these things to tell the author to go fuck themselves with complete insincerity and relish. Uh, I love the emphasis you place on vulnerability, what it requires, and the effect it can have on people who seem to have never felt like they could be the same. I love how you vocally Sometimes beat yourself up when a word is jumbled or you d- decide to say something that causes you to groan. I think it does a lot to reinforce that sense of not being alone in this kind of self-talk and it makes me giggle. All the best and go fuck yourself, KG. <laughs> Thank you, KG. For those of you that are new listeners, uh, go fuck yourself is kind of a running a running uh, inside joke we, uh, we have here on the podcast. Well, um, I should see you next week unless something goes horribly wrong with my shoulder surgery. And um, I just, I hope you got something out of today's episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know bizarrely fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.